wanted proof, ladies and gentlemen, that Chris Lynch makes your college hockey game more interesting. Just go look at the gif of the goal RPI scored on itself this week. I'm Tim Williams, and this is Puck University. I am joined this week, as always, by our New England correspondent, Chris Lynch, and we have to start here. Earlier this week, we're recording on Wednesday, in a game between UMass Lowell and RPI. Well, I've already set the stage. Chris, take it away. Okay, so this was at the end of the weekend. This was on Sunday. It was the only collegiate game that was being played that uh, that day. It was up in Troy, New York, at the largest ECAC building, which trivia question, uh, the Houston Fieldhouse in Troy, New York, is the largest building in the entire ECAC. It's larger than Lina. It's uh, larger than it's larger than every other building, which just in the kind of cool and random trivia department. Uh, Lowell and RPI played the back end of a two-game set. They played early on Friday and at uh, at the Songus Center. RPI went, walked away with a two-to-one road victory. Good job for them, by the way. And the first period, six fifty in, RPI got a power play. Their goaltender sprinted off to the bench. And left the net open. And Owen Savory, that, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to hit the bench and give your team an opportunity to have an extra skater to try and score. Well, uh, it didn't exactly work out the way that they wanted to. Because Jakob Laka, I'm going to repeat that name again. Jakob, J-A-K-U-B, Laka, L-A-C-K-A. From Slovakia, controlled the puck in the corner. He was trying to throw a pass back to the point. There was no one there, and it went 200 feet into the empty net. And I've never seen a goal like that in person. Uh, I've seen some tape of it happening in the National Hockey League on, like, on just accidental goofy plays. But yeah, that happened. It was a hilarious moment. I'm very sorry to make fun of the good people up in Troy, New York, and the 2300 who took in the Sunday matinee, but that was so hilarious. Lowell ended up getting the win, and I think the uh, the empty netter kind of aided in that whole process and signaled it might be Lowell's day, but it was hilarious. Nothing personal, RPI, but good job on the comedy, guys. Good, good job. Yeah, in the interest of fairness, RPI does have one of the more intense fan bases you will find in the ECAC or really anywhere, even though they're, they haven't really had the greatest of runs in the last few years. There's a reason they have such a big building and they, they will be back before very long. I trust that RPI will restore itself to where it has been historically in the ECAC and become a contender once again. But yeah, that that's rough. I honestly, before I saw that clip, that gif, that video, wherever you see it, I hadn't, it never occurred to me that you could score an own goal during having the extra attacker out. It's just not a thought that I had ever really had while watching hockey that that could happen. So I had to watch the thing several times over just to get a grip on how that could actually happen. Even though when you see it, it seems like an innocent mistake and you're surprised when you watch it that it doesn't happen more often because all it really takes is one missed pass. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an honest mistake, and no one was hard on it on the bench. No one overly beat themselves up for it that I could tell anyway or that was said publicly. No one looked like they were you know, overly distraught. They looked completely shocked, and the Lowell bench looked at it as a complete gift because then they – went on the penalty kill and RPI didn't score on that, on that, uh, on that power play. But uh, yeah, Lowell looked at it as a complete gift, which it was. It's just one of those things that it, it can absolutely happen. And you look at the scheme and the setup and you, you do have to wonder why it doesn't happen more frequently, but it's one of those fluky quirky things that sometimes happens in this sport that uh, I've seen it a couple times, like maybe once or twice at the NHL level, just in the compilation videos of hilarious hockey happenings and the sports center not top 10 plays, those kind of things. I've seen it once or twice, but yeah, it's not that frequent a thing. And I do hope that RPI puts something back together. They've won two national championships, one back in the 50s and one in uh, 1985, which actually ends off one of the more compelling instances and more compelling stories in college hockey because that was also the first year that Hockey East existed. Lou Lamarilla was coaching Providence, and the, the, those Friars won the first-ever Hockey East title and made it to the national championship game before losing to RPI and Adam Oates. So there's plenty of good history in that RPI program and in that building that uh, I'd like to see them get back to uh, back to form. That gift will not help them do that. No, and it has instantly become my second favorite college hockey gift ever, and it will remain in a folder where I keep all of these kind of things in my bookmarks for quite some time. What's number one? You went to BU, so you shouldn't be asking that question. Please never – please burn that tape. <laughs> <sighs> I, I will admit that I introduce some um, some locals to it down here in the Tampa Bay area every now and then when, say, the Buffalo Sabres come to town like they're about to on Thursday. Just can we move on and talk about something else, please? <laughs> That's my well, reaction every single time I hear this game because it's just every single time that game gets talked about. Because I don't think – at least for this generation of college hockey people, I'm not sure there are many games that are talked about more than that one, truthfully. I I remember showing it to someone in, in the Amelie Arena press box that really didn't know much about college hockey, and his reaction to it was, wait, no, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds about right. My reaction was something a lot... Uh, not less broadcastable, but uh, something like that as well. And I assume that a, lo a lot of people in the building were like that too. Just hear John Bouchagross on the original call of it, and that's pretty much the summation of what you uh, what you ever want to know about that that play that has traumatized BU more than more than any I, I, the modern BU fan base has been traumatized by that play so much that it's almost unbelievable to think that one school can be haunted by one play so badly well in the interest of cheering you up i think we should pivot and talk about boston college's weekend they were at <laughs> home against bentley you are playing to uh you are i i admire you playing to the crowd that's very good that's very very good 
Hey, Northeastern's good for a couple of years for the first time in our history. I'm going to flaunt this. I'm going to find it, it's taken a long time. I was in the shell for the entire last season, keeping keeping with that. We're Charlie Brown and hockey is the football, but now we've kicked the football. So I, I have to have a little bit of fun with this before it's over. So let's talk about Bentley four to two over Boston College on Friday night at Conti Forum. BC, we've talked a lot about their struggles out of conference. It's been since 2016 that they've won an out of conference game, but of all their out of conference stumble has got to be the most baffling. Falling to Bentley at home in a game that they had to have circled ever since they lost their last out of conference game. And well, they never led. Bentley scored two goals in the second period and two more in the third. BC came as close as one goal down. They got two back in the third, but Bentley pulled away with an empty net goal by, I'm I'm going to apologize in advance, Jake Kaupala, and Bentley took the win. It's a huge upset for them. I compared it to a friend to if little FAU Lane Kiffin's the Lane Train FAU were to somehow upset Miami in football it would be around that kind of an upset this we talked about how BC's been reeling but man are they on their heels now and such a terrible week for them to go into with that kind of loss them playing BU this weekend which is one of the defining rivalries of the sport to be specific and to put a date on it, the last non-conference game that Boston College won was November 13th, 2016. That was their, the second full month of the 16-17 season at Conti Forum against Arizona State, who was at that point in their first year of existence. Their last conference road game was actually a good conference uh, victory on the road. In the icebreaker tournament at Denver, they won 3-1 to one over the Pioneers, who that year would go on to win the national championship and were possibly the best collegiate team I've ever seen. And in my dad's description, because he's been a college hockey guy or a fan since he went to Harvard in the 70s, and he was in attendance in Chicago for when Denver won that national championship in, uh, in 2017 – with Will Butcher and that cast, that Denver team was maybe the best he'd ever seen. And he'd been, he had seen Korea and that 93 main team. So it's the last conference road game that BC won was against a really, really good team in Denver. But the last overall non-conference game was against a young baby Arizona state team. That was only in their first full year of existence. This out of conference record is bad for them. And they're, it doesn't matter at all that they're 3-1-1 one, one in Hockey East and that they've got one of the better records in conference again because they're just going to get into the tournament, and if they slip up and make one or two mistakes, as they did against BU last year in the semifinals and against Lowell in the conference championship game, they're going to lose at TD Garden, and their year is going to be done. And it would deserve to be because you can't have that terrible and out of conference record and have some of the performances outside of hockey East that they've had one nothing against Quinnipiac this year where they look bad, seven zip against St. Cloud where they've looked lost. And then this game against Bentley, where Bentley 
has a new shiny fancy arena and all and they've put a lot more effort but it's a young it's a young team that has a lot of coming up to do and a lot of college hockey fans will look at bentley and go who nothing personal against those guys but i understand the response so it's a terrible result for bc and one that they need to start figuring themselves out I'm looking ahead to when they next have, they have three consecutive out of conference games over new year. The 31st, they go to Notre Dame. Then they are at Arizona state on the fourth and fifth of January. Those are their next three opportunities. And until the bean pot, those are their last opportunities for any non-conference win this season. And, the hockey East games are the ones that are going to mean the most, particularly the ones against BU this weekend. But those three around the turn of the new year are, should be, are, or at least should be circled as the most, some of the most important games of the season. You need to prove you can win outside hockey East. Otherwise you have no chance at making the tournament lest you went out. And that's hard to do in this conference right now. And easier said than done, because of course we know how good Notre Dame is. They've been good for years. They're one of the contenders this year. We've known that since before the season even started. So going into Compton Family Ice Arena and winning a game is tough for anybody, but especially for a BC team that's going to be feeling a lot of pressure in that, well... I don't know if you'd call it a rivalry, but those schools have a rivalry between each other. They certainly have history, mostly on the football field, but still. And then they play Arizona State, which maybe before the season you might have thought, well, those are going to be a couple of BC wins. But right now, Arizona State's ranked. If they played this weekend, Arizona State would be favored. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're 18th right now, and to be totally fair to uh, them right now, Arizona State has been in a little bit of a stumbling block lately. They're 10-6 and six overall. They went to Nebraska-Omaha and lost both games, 6-4 to four the first night and 4 nothing the second. And For Arizona State, which does rely plenty on their offense and also probably over-relies on Joey Dackard, their goaltender, to get them some wins. I just have to wonder if they're going to start running into some thicker competition, how they'll handle that, because when they get Colorado College and Clarkson in the uh, next two weeks back at home, but first they have to go to Princeton, who can score five on you in a hurry. So, But yeah, in, in, a, in a matchup between Arizona State and BC, right now, State's the favorite, particularly with that those games being played in Arizona. I think the first one is uh the first one of those is going to be played and i'm looking over at the bc side okay the first one is going to be played in tempe the second one will be played in glendale at the at the uh the gila river arena the first one will be at the ocean side ice arena go ahead and fill in your uh ocean in the desert joke about that name of it but it's a hard schedule for them up ahead, and then they still have to play Providence twice when they get back into hockey schedule. They have the Bean Pot, which they get Harvard in round one, who's maybe turning the corner, and they still have their two-game series against UMass Samhurst, which have fun with that, guys. In fact, they haven't played any of the top teams in Hockey East. They have both of their games against Providence still ahead of them. They have both of their games against Northeastern still ahead of them. They have... I'm sorry, all three of their games against yeah. Providence. They have 
the University of Massachusetts Amherst ahead of them in February, right after the bean pot, which you're again, there's if they don't win those games against Notre Dame and Arizona State, they're going to be coming into the bean pot. And those are their last out of conference games. And of course, only one of them, the game against Harvard on February 4th, is really an out of conference game, even though they all count that way. The other ones would be against BU or Northeastern, whoever loses or wins that game, depending on how the first Monday shakes out. So it just, it's getting worse for BC. And the question of the day, I really think, is is this just a class of players that can't get over the hump out of conference or is this something going on with a larger program look as much as we make fun of bc i know you have the utmost respect for jerry york and so do i i i really like the guy but maybe something's a little up and boy that's just sad to even think about yeah i I almost kind of can't think about uh I almost can't think about uh, there being anything going on there but to broach the subject I can't even imagine college hockey without Jerry York if he were to leave BC I know who I'd want to succeed him but I don't know what the conference or the sport would look like without him if he were to if it were his time to step down which is a bad thought um, and yeah, sitting down at a press conference with him or just sitting down and talking with him is like sitting down in a, in a classroom with professor York and all these people, all these coaches really do have their own different type of persona, their own different kind of, uh, their, of, uh, just mood that you get when talking to them when in a professional context. I, I described Jim Madigan as some odd mix of a business teacher and a salesperson. He was a business teacher for a time at Northeastern. David Quinn, for the time that he was at BU, he was really the first coach that I got to uh, that I got to, uh, interact with in any serious way. It was almost like you were interviewing for a magazine shoot because he always stepped off and he was dressed perfectly and his hair was all perfect. And he was calm and witty and charming, and except when he was angry. And then that also made for a good magazine story as well. I was up in New Hampshire and Enrico, and uh, Rico Blasi felt like you were sitting down and talking with a priest about God. Uh, it's just everyone has their own different kind of persona. Jerry York has his as the professor of college hockey. And he's rightfully earned that. And I have to echo your concerns about what the future of the program might be. And I'm sure we'll get a lot of answers from the BU weekend that they've got upcoming, which that's one of the defining bits of the weekend. And I'll admit truthfully that I'm a lot less excited for this weekend than I have been in years past because the quality of the team season so far just hasn't been there. But I'm still intrigued, and I'll at least be at one of the games. So. It's just a curious state for me to feel like uh, for both of these teams. Yeah, at the risk of kind of going back and forth between this week and last week, I do want to kind of touch on that because right before we started recording, you started talking as a fan that 
this BUBC rivalry, which is, of course, one of the defining rivalries of college hockey itself, and certainly in the East, it is the biggest rivalry in college hockey, that it just doesn't intrigue you the way it normally does. And with with it almost being a sort of rivalry weekend back East in college hockey and really across the sport, you've got another option there with Harvard and good old, good old familiar rival Cornell coming into bright Landry hockey center on Saturday. And, you know, as much as I, I know you love these games, I know you care deeply about BU. It's part of your DNA as well. It should be, you went there, but it's hard to turn down wanting to go see Cornell and Harvard with the way BU and BC are playing right now. I mean, I went there, my parents met at BU law school. My brother is a BU alum. My uncle's got a couple degrees from there. I am a BU person through and through. We're a BU family. And I just don't care about this rivalry as much as I normally do. That isn't to say I'm ignoring it entirely. That isn't to say that it doesn't interest me at all. I always want to see what happens in these games, but I just don't care about these these two teams' seasons as much anymore. In part, there's other parts of Hockey East that are a lot more compelling to me. I mean, UMass Amherst has been the story of the year in college hockey with the typical discussions of an upstart team uh, being, are they for real? Are they uh, a worthy contender with me being in the strident? Yes, they are for real camp. And uh, for a lot of other people's trying to people trying to pump the brakes on it, which I understand, but that story is a lot more interesting to me. UNH has been in a lot of really close games and I think they have more talent than the record. That story interests me a lot more. Um, Providence is a much better and much more consistent and entertaining team. Heck, I'd even take Northeastern for being a better story right now. BU has just looked at times uninspired. I mean, they had their weekend against Northeastern when they got three points out of it. But aside from that, they had a good win against UConn over in the Friendship Four in Belfast, and Union was just a better team overall, or they played like a better team. In BC, we know what their struggles have been. So, yeah, it's really strange for me to be feeling like that, but. I'll go to one of them. I'll I'll be on press row for the game at Aganis. Um, but Saturday night, the Harvard-Cornell rivalry intrigues me a bit more because I see both of those teams as having a bit more long-term possibilities. And admittedly, also, I did see those teams at Madison Square Garden. So, And that matchup was pretty fun, and I'd like to see that matchup again. It won't be on, on as quite a grand a stage because nothing is Madison Square Garden, but Still, that matchup just intrigues me a lot more. Well, and moving on a little bit to BU and the Friendship Four, which was, as as advertised, a fantastic tournament, fun to watch. It looks like the the crew in Belfast really enjoyed it. They They have every year. It's continually one of the hits of the early season. And it was a great tournament with BU beating Connecticut in the in, – the first round and going on to meet with Union, who had to go overtime against Yale in a fantastic matchup all its own. And then you get to the final, and it's a 2 1 win for Union. Of course, a good showing for all the schools involved because these were all close games, but Union takes it over BU. And I think it's more about Union than anybody else, the friendship for. 
they've had a great start to their season. They've continued it with that win. They now have a tournament win under their belt. So they can they can kind of puff their chest out about that. And a lot of concerns about the Dutchmen have been allayed with their trip to Northern Ireland and how successful it was. But just putting a button on the BUBC talk, if Boston University, who needs the wins as well, were to pull off a sweep of BC, would that send the reeling program into full outright panic? I think so. Um, I think it would, absolutely. I don't think we'll get a sweep. I think we'll probably get a split because the last couple of years, we've had some really interesting road splits. Last year, BU won a shootout at Conti, and uh, and Joe Wool completely stole the uh, the game away for Boston College at Aganis. I think that we might get something like that, maybe a home-and-home split. But you're right. A, a sweep going in BU's favor would completely destroy any any what remains of uh, of enthusiasm for this season and would cause a lot of concerns for that Eagles team. So I expect that they're going to play some inspired hockey ultimately. I, I know that BU will. I, I There's a few things about BU that you are almost always defined by how you do in that weekend or those games against Boston College because – it's not just like in college football where you're building up to this one weekend. There's also a real legitimate possibility that you might end up seeing that other team somewhere down the road. And even with the poor finish, it's uh, start to the year really for both teams. There's absolutely the possibility that both of them can see each other in the postseason somewhere down the road. So I don't deny its importance. I will be at least at one of these games, but it's it's just a curious position to be in, and I I also should note that BU really should take a lot of positive things away from that performance in Northern Ireland. First off, a good conference win because Hockey East counted that UConn BU matchup in the conference standings, which is a little bit strange, but uh, I mean okay. So they get a conference win out of it, which is very good. They get a good showing, which is very good. And they run into a goaltender in Darian Hansen who just played out of his mind. 39 saves on 40 shots faced. Ty Monty had the only goal that got through for BU, and his line looks like it's getting a bit better. Brett Sapinski and Parker Fu continue to be real big-time players for Union. And the Dutchmen look like they're a team to contend in the ECAC, and that's really good that uh, – it, it's really good, I think, that the smaller schools like Union, which only has like 2,121, 2,200 people attending it, I think it's really good that the smaller schools really have the opportunity to be powerhouses in this sport. I think it can inspire a lot of people. It makes for some awesome stories. So good on the Dutchman for putting on a really nice showing over on Northern Ireland. And from everyone I've heard, they loved it over over overseas. So good on them for enjoying it and good on them for organizing such an awesome tournament. Getting to some of the meat of last weekend, Penn State and Ohio State, the highest ranked matchup of, of anyone in the last weekend. And of course, at Value City Arena in Columbus, the two teams split and they split in kind of predictable fashion. Penn State won three to or four to three. 
over Ohio State on Friday night. Ohio State's defense really came out and showed its teeth on Saturday. They won 5-2. to two. This is, of course, one of those unstoppable force versus immovable object kind of things with Ohio State being such a good defensive team and Penn State being, well, a circus show on offense, really. So it it was going to provide excitement and entertainment, and it delivered. Uh, yeah, about that whole defense thing. Penn State got 40 shots in both games, 40, uh, 43 the first night and 40 the second night. It just so happens that Tommy Napier, who's been splitting time with Sean Romeo in the Ohio State net this year, is kind of absurd. Uh, he's been one of the best goaltenders in the nation with a 957 save percentage on the year so far and a 137 goals against. The 137 is second behind St. Cloud State goaltender Jeff Smith. So, um, yeah, I would argue that that's a game in which goaltending kind of stole the show away, particularly when Ohio State only got 33 shots away. But it's not as if Ohio State is completely lacking for offense. And yeah, Ohio State is ranked sixth in the nation for goals allowed per game. They are allowing an even two per game, which ties them with Minnesota Duluth behind Quinnipiac, Notre Dame, St. Cloud, UMass, and Bowling Green. Interestingly, Bowling Green has the lowest uh, output for goals against with a 169. UMass and St. Cloud are second with a 183 for your good defensive teams. But yeah, I think this is definitely a case of, and for highest goal scoring, Penn State, 531, 5.31 goals per game. It's it's not close. The second best offensive team in the country, St. Cloud, 425. That's over a goal per game fewer. It It's actually comical how not close it is. Trouble is, and this is going to be a thing that Penn State will have to deal with moving forward. They do have to actually either lean into their goaltending a lot more than they would really want to or have to show a blue line that can really defend and keep the puck out of the net. their net. They're 52nd out of 60 teams in the nation for keeping the puck out of their own net. So I think there's some concern to be had about what the Penn State defense does, particularly postseason hockey is a lot more physical, a lot more hitting, and a lot more grindy than regular season hockey is when you can – throw bullets around like no one cares it's just one of those kind of games where you have to be a little bit more concerned and i should note about that 5-2 game both of those came like there were two ohio state goals that were shorthanded and empty netters and penn state still managed to get their opportunity so it was really a 3-2 game that was one five two for whatever that's worth but yeah, it lived up to its billing, and both these teams continue to be the class of the Big Ten, while Notre Dame is kind of figuring themselves out at this point. They're a little bit further down in the standings. Or they're 8-4-1, and one, not quite as highly ranked as uh, as you would expect, but these two teams on the overall record continue to be the class of their conference. And Notre Dame needing overtime to dispatch with Northern Michigan on Tuesday night, just last night, because we're recording this on a Wednesday. So they, they've been a bit up and down this year. We know the talent is there, especially between the pipes. But Notre Dame's been up and down. It's the, the early season, I like to say, is a good place for a team to figure out what it doesn't do well so that 
when it comes to crunch time, they can remedy those things. No, that's a fair description. That's absolutely a fair description. You figure out what kind of team you are, what kind of uh, unit you're going to put yourself together, and you can kind of understand where you're going to, uh, where you're going to make your noise and what your bread and butter is going to be. And Penn State, offense, offense, like no one's business. They have, you want to hear another kind of goofy stat with them? They have their goals for, this is the number of goals that they've scored. This season, they have 69 goals. Number two is Arizona State with 54. And uh, I should note that Arizona State has played 16 games. Penn State has played 13, which means that in three fewer games, Penn State has scored 14, has scored 15 more goals than the second-place team in that category. They're a goofy team. I'm just excited that I... I'll get to see them play Princeton later on uh, the, in December when they go to play a game at the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia on the 15th, I think. So that's just, I'm really excited uh, to see that Penn State team in action. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned going down to Philadelphia and being able to take in a pro arena, but just just recently, you were able to see what is probably... America's most hallowed indoor sports venue, the the great Madison Square Garden, and it it's really like nothing else. Oh my God, it was awesome! That building, I've been in there a couple times before for uh, for other college hockey games. Cornell's been in all of them because Cornell is kind of New York City's college hockey team, even though it's four hours to get to Ithaca from from Madison Square Garden, and they're not the same thing at all, actually. But, yeah, it's a really cool building every single time you get to go in there. And you look up at the banners, and it is a really cool sight to see uh, the great Knicks banners of Patrick Ewing and uh, and all all the greats that played there, Willis Reed and Earl Earl of Pearl Monroe, Clyde Frazier, and then you look up at the Rangers side, and they're honoring, you know, Messier and their '94 team, which is one of the most talked about and revered teams. Uh, Brian Leach has another one. Uh, there's there's a lot of history in that building, and they have their concert build uh, banners as well. The two that I remember seeing the most, and you mentioned this before, Billy Joel, I think played the most sold out concerts there. I think is that what that banner is for. And I think so. Yeah, and Fish. The reason why they're up there is because they had a 13-night stand at Madison Square Garden, which they played 13 consecutive nights at that building. And I think it's one of the longest concerts that uh, concert series that's ever been had at that place. I think the prior people who'd done that were uh, were Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band almost 20 years before. But yeah, it's one of the coolest buildings, and it featured one of the best rivalries between Harvard and Cornell, and the attendance was pretty good. 14,000 turned out for that game. It wasn't quite a sellout, but they didn't open up every section of the building for it. But it was a really, really fun game, and one that Harvard needed to win, and they did, 4-1. to one. But also some interesting things to come out from the Cornell side when – Cornell's coach, uh, McShafer, said that it was, quote, the least physical he's ever seen a Cornell team play against any Harvard team. And that means something because he has been the head coach of that program for a not small amount of time. 
uh, he has had that job. He graduated from Cornell in uh, in 1986. He's been there for a very long time, and there have been a not small number of matchups between Harvard and Cornell. So that's maybe a bit concerning. I think that's part of why I'm so intrigued about this Harvard-Cornell game that's happening on Saturday at Bright Landry because I want to see if Cornell can bounce back from that, and I also think that both of these teams are worthy contenders to at least do something crazy in the ECAC, maybe even do something in the national tournament. I think both these teams have the talent to get there. And the win like that could be the building block that Harvard needs to really turn on the Jets and get themselves in position to do that. It's certainly possible. This is Harvard's biggest problem so far this year. Their offense has been fine. They're fifth in the nation in goals per game at 377, behind only UMass, Nankato, St. Cloud, and Penn State. Uh, their defense, though, has been bad. And their goaltending, they hadn't sorted out. I said this on the last podcast, but to reiterate, the biggest departure from last year's team was not Ryan Donato. It was Merrick Madsen. He was the goaltender who got them to the Frozen Four and who kept them in that game against Duluth and took a pounding, and he played a great game. And they nearly won that game in large part because of his heroics and nearly played in the national championship game because of his heroics. And they've been competitive in pretty much every situation for a while now because of him. Michael Lackey and Cameron Gornett are your two main guys who are vying to succeed them. Lackey got the start against Cornell and looked great. There was one match, uh, one sequence fairly early on in the third period where Cornell just swarmed the net and pounded him, and he stole a bunch of goals away from them. So he was the biggest difference between the two in that game. Cornell outshot Harvard 15-8 to in that third period in front of a 14,000 in which most of that crowd, maybe, maybe like 10 or 11 K of those people were Cornell fans. And I might be underselling that a bit. It was a dominantly Cornell crowd and it was a, it was a stolen game by, by Michael Lackey. So it might well be the game which turns their season around and gets them going. It certainly might be, but only time will tell only, well, Actually, maybe only this weekend will tell. Okay, so going on to some of the other big ranked matchups, or or at least matchups involving ranked teams, we mentioned Arizona State's rough weekend against Nebraska. Omaha will really see more about this Arizona State team as the season rolls on, but I will point out that with a couple of wins and with Johnny Walker being as good as he's been, this is a team that maybe was overlooked in early schedules by some of their opponents. And now they have the target on their back and that you hear it in any sport that once you become the talked about team, everyone wants their shot at you. I mean, I feel like I have to note something about Johnny Walker, which is that, yeah, he does have the, uh, he does have the target on his back and they figured him out for a while now. Actually, he's been held quiet he he was held completely pointless against Omaha. He did score a goal against Harvard, and it was also the overtime game winner, which is, I mean, it's the overtime game winner. That's pretty awesome. But aside from that game, including the series against Harvard, Michigan State, and Omaha, he has been held pointless, not just goalless, pointless in five out of his last six games. So 
I think there might be some bit of concern and I'll fully admit that it might be just the travel schedule that Arizona state has to play because of their geography and how they figure into the map with the closest schools being in the state of Colorado, no one else being in their state and everyone else that they travel to on the road is kind of far away. It might just be that they're getting tired. It might also be that defenses are adjusting to and figuring them out. It would help if they were in a conference that they could have something that resembled consistent schedule and places to go, but they don't get that kind of luxury right now. So, yeah, it's worth noting that uh, Johnny Walker has struggled a bit lately, but you got to see what what uh, he can do as long as his team can give him an opportunity to win some stuff. UMass Amherst continued their early season blessed run beating Princeton 3-2 to two in overtime. It's another one of those games that had a big billing behind it. You really wanted to see that Princeton team because they're just so entertaining. And at this point, if you haven't seen UMass Amherst play this year, you you really should make the time because there's there's really no one like them right now in college hockey. And, and it's a first, and it's so interesting when a school – finally breaks through in this sport because for so long it was a sport of blue bloods and doormats and really very little in between and a school like Massachusetts Amherst that's always been one of those doormats finally getting their due as parody kind of comes to college hockey through an abundance of recruits that are just better and better on a regular basis and almost across the board for college hockey. This is the kind of result, and you're seeing it with UMass, Amherst. They take that 3-2 win, and they keep everything going right now, and it's early. They're not just the one of the best teams in Hockey East. They are, without question, one of the best teams in the early season in the country. I feel like I have to keep reiterating this point, but I I thought they could be good. I thought they could be really good after their run last year in the hockey's playoffs when they had their series against Vermont and Kale McCarr and John Leonard put on a show with two highlight goals that'll be on the reels forever. And the second that we start talking about the turn of the program, because we will, uh, I, I as long as they can keep this up for a couple of years, I mean, not maybe not this level, maybe not eleven and one, which would put them right now. If we were just to list off the Frozen Four as being the four best teams, they would be. They'd be there. Uh, they'd be in contention for a national championship, and I think they will be in contention moving forward. But uh, I, I thought they'd be good. I didn't think that they'd be quite this dominant. As, as they have been so far. And it's worth noting that the pace of that game, UMass controlled and dominated that game. It's only through the efforts of Ryan Furland, Princeton's goaltender, who nearly stole that game. He faced 46 so- six shots and saved 43 of them. He did everything that he possibly could have to try and keep his team in that game. His offense was held to 25 shots on net. Luke Keenan and Max Veranow were the two goal scorers. Both of those came in the second period. Oliver Chow, who's another part of that sophomore class, which is touted pretty well. He's not one of the headliner guys. He's not Ferraro, McCarr, or Leonard, which are the three headliners of that class. 
which by the way, McCarr also got another highlight goal, but you know, what, what else is news? Uh, so I, I'm just surprised that there's no news of a big game where John Leonard didn't get a goal. I wonder if he will hear this. And then this next time they have a big game, he goes out and scores a big goal just to prove me wrong. It wouldn't surprise me, but, uh, but UMass controlled the pace of this game completely. I mean, 17 to six for the shots in the first period, 14, 10, the second 12, three, excuse me, 12, nine in the third and three Oh in overtime. So for all of the regular periods all the regular time of play in that uh in that game UMass got double digits shots they controlled the pace of that game completely against one of the best offensive teams in the nation so I think this UMass team's for real I'm gonna keep trumpeting it from the mountaintops and I hope I don't rub in the point of I told you so too much and I also hope they keep winning so that I can keep leaning on the argument of I told you so yeah, just a little bit of inside baseball for everybody about trying to cover sports and being a sports writer and getting in there. When you start making claims, and you have to eventually, you might not be the ESPN-style hot take artist, but we all have to kind of make our predictions, or at least we'll say things that can be construed as predictions. And it's just so hard not to root for those things to become true because when they do it feels so good when they don't by the way everyone knows it i don't know how it is that every one of your readers will always know when you've got something wrong but you're the only one that knows when you get something right but it's just something that i've talked to other people about this i think everyone does it you end up being once you make that kind of prediction you end up rooting for it very hard because you just want to be able to go and say i told you so and I, I think it's part of what pulls people like us into this business. Yeah. I mean, in part, we all just want to be right about something. This is a way in which we can express our rightness, and people can make fun of us and poke us for all of our wrongness. It's one of the most annoying and yet one of the most entertaining parts of this sport. It's a little addicting, truthfully, but uh, I'm just happy that I made a prediction about UMass being pretty good. And I'll also note that I have a vote in the uh, the Hockey East media poll for the start of the year. I thought about putting UMass at number one, and I didn't, but I kind of wish I had. I thought about who I would put ahead of them. I thought at the time, and feel free to laugh at me for my uh, either my recency bias or my predictions, I had BU at number one, which that turned out to be wrong. I had BC a little bit further down the way at number three. I had Providence at number two. I'm still happy with the Providence pick, and I put UMass at number four. I still kind of kicked myself. I kind of wanted to put UMass at number one, but I thought, nah, no one else is going for it. So what more could I see ahead of them that uh, that everyone else is is seeing right through? Which it's November, or it's going to be December by the time this weekend is complete, but I still kind of wish I would have put UMass at the top of my media poll vote and given them one of one of one first place vote at least, you know? Yeah, I can I can see that. It's I remember seeing that poll and even as a Northeastern fan and even as someone who has said on this podcast repeatedly that people that were expecting them to just fade away because that top line was gone are speaking prematurely. I saw them get a first place vote and laughed 
I could not believe that compared to the other teams in that conference. Now, of course, you go and look at that poll and you certainly weren't the only one that that played a couple of teams that are having really rough starts to their season as favorites and co-favorites because I think most people did that, but and certainly the poll will will back that up. But while we're talking about the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and their their run, I want to read a quote that I'm looking at right now from Coach Greg Carvel after their last win, this win over Providence that Princeton. Or Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been away. That's <laughs> no, totally fair. I totally get that. Yeah, yeah that that it's still my bet. E me score that one if you're for those of you scoring at home and for those of you scoring at home find a hobby please <laughs> i mean to be fair UMass did beat providence too so just just saying it's a <laughs> yes, it did. But, okay to the quote i read some stories on the internet about how we're not supposed to be here and how it's not for real like we're tricking and fooling everybody and that we get out shot but we had almost 50 shots tonight against the top 20 team I give my kids a ton of credit. They show up, they play hard every night. I don't know what the stat is for that, but we play hard every night. We have a good group of kids that do it right. We're 11 and one. Yeah. Bulletin board material. We talk about it. You might wonder out there how often it really does come into play. Trust me. They always know. And that chip on the shoulder is always there. It's part of being a competitor. So, it if you're if you're a fan of the Minutemen, I think that if you didn't already love Greg Carvel, there's a good reason to start. That here he is. You can see it. He's wearing it on his sleeve. He knows how good the team he has can be. And maybe the rest of us are skeptical because we're, again, we're still used to the old college hockey landscape of blue blue bloods on the left, doormats on the right, but that's not true anymore. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sick of this, this whole thing. I'm loving it in part. I, I kind of saw it coming uh, in part just because I'm reading a lot of stuff about Kale McCarr potentially being a leading nominee for the Hobie Baker award and yes I I would absolutely give him my vote if I had one to determine the Hobie Baker if we were to do the early selection for that right now for uh for scheduling stuff for what UMass has up ahead they actually do have a decent test they have a home game on Friday night against UConn uh so only one game this weekend and then the 7th and 8th they face Quinnipiac and that's going to be another one of those bellwether games where you can really get a grip on the kind of team that they have and the kind of schedule that they will, uh, uh, the kind of play that they'll have when postseason pressure gets here and ramps up because Quinnipiac also a really good team. If you got to see any of their uh, performances against Maine over the weekend and also worth noting that Quinnipiac is ranked ninth in the country right now. So we have another potential for that to be a top 10 matchup in the college hockey sphere. So that's, that's just wicked exciting. Of course, to get there, Quinnipiac's going to have to have a good weekend. They play Princeton 
at home at Frank Parati Jr. Arena in Hamden on November 30th. That's Friday. And on Saturday, they're at Hobie Baker Rink in Princeton. This is rare, an ECAC home and home between the same two teams. But it's a classic for college hockey. And these two teams are particularly fascinating. Quinnipiac, another one of those that you might not have seen coming into the season as a real contender, but they're back to where they were two years ago. They're a very good team and a very good program. And Princeton, one of those teams, kind of like Penn State, that'll just shoot the lights out of a building if you let them. Yeah, so to explain a little bit about why this is somewhat unusual, the way the ECAC structures their schedule is that every one of their teams has a travel partner when they go on the road. The way it works out, um, Harvard is paired up with Dartmouth, Brown with Yale, Quinnipiac with Princeton, Cornell with Colgate, RPI with Union, and Clarkson with St. Lawrence. I think I got all of them. I think uh, just remind me if I missed anyone. Princeton and Quinnipiac, as I just mentioned, are travel partners. So when they aren't, so whenever, so travel partners, for example, Harvard will go up to, let's say when Harvard goes and faces Cornell, they might face Cornell on the Friday night and then go and face Colgate the next night. Dartmouth will have the inverse schedule. So if Harvard is at Cornell, Dartmouth will be at Colgate. And then the next night, they just switch opponents. That's the way the ECAC does their scheduling for all this kind of stuff. For those of you who want a little bit more inside baseball and a little bit of understanding of why the scheduling works itself out that way, that's why it works itself out that way. Hockey East does the home and homes if it can be helped. If you're going to Maine or Vermont, then you're almost certainly just playing two games up there and you're not doing a home and home because that's a lot of travel. Princeton and Quinnipiac are travel partners. They're pretty close to each other. They're uh, they're paired up, and they're, uh, you know, it, and people have asked, well, why, wait, why aren't why why aren't uh, Quinnipiac and Yale travel partners? I guess they wanted to just keep Ivies together as much as possible, and I guess that's what they decided to go with. But yeah, that's a curious matchup for just styles of of play as well, and. I hope that people do turn out for it. I mean, Quinnipiac has been doing very well in attendance so far this season. Princeton, I hope people fill out Hobie Baker because they really, really do have a good, good quality hockey team there, and I hope people support it. That that team deserves all the support it can possibly muster. Should we take a moment before we get into some more of next or of this coming weekend's big games and talk kind of expand on the conversation we had before we started recording about attendance because attendance in college hockey as much as we talk about the game is on the rise and the game is on the rise make no mistake it has become a better breeding ground for future pros and it has the quality of play seems to be going up across the board every single year which is also again leading to a sort of parity where it's not just the same few schools that dominate the way that it used to be, but the numbers at these buildings and even in a lot of the buildings that you would expect would be full all the time, they just aren't. And the numbers aren't there. The attendance is, well, it's lacking. Okay. So here, so this is a chart that college hockey news compiles. From what I could tell, it is a little bit of an incomplete chart for just the total numbers, but this is the closest thing I have 
for right now. This compiles the number of games played, the average attendance, and the capacity of the building. It also has a percentage for uh, for how well the programs that filled out the building. And let's get the programs that have been doing really well out of the way first to say good for you, keep it up. North Dakota, there they have the uh, they have the largest total attendance. They fill up their their capacity for their building eleven thousand five hundred. They average eleven three seventy one. That's 98.9% of their capacity. North Dakota is fine. That program is good. We love you guys up, uh, up, in, uh, up in North Dakota. Keep, keep up with it. Uh, Minnesota, a little bit, bit down. They're averaging about 84% of their building, which is 8,400. They have a 10,000-person arena. So, But eh, a little bit down. Duluth, they're filling out pretty well. 91% of, their, of uh, their, fan, uh, their building is full every single night. Penn State. Their building capacity is listed at 5,700. Their average attendance is 6,000. Their capacity is 106%. I'm assuming that's including standing room as well because uh, Penn State, good job. You guys are supporting your team. Keep doing that. that that's awesome. Uh, RIT is another program that fills up and supports their, their people in a giant way. 107.7% capacity. 43,000 is the 4,300, I should say, is their capacity at their building. 4,633 is the average so far this year. And the other team to highlight for getting 100% attendance so far, Quinnipiac. They've been doing a very good job in getting people there. In part, the team has done very, very well. So I just want to, before we get into the, uh, the kind of downside of it all, I want to talk about the people who are doing good. You're doing good, Quinnipiac and RIT and North Dakota and all you guys, Duluth and Penn State, you're doing good. Keep doing, keep doing good. This this is very good. Yeah, it's good to see those good those big fan bases show up, and especially you would expect North Dakota would fill their building, and it's good to hear they're continuing to do that as the Fighting Hawks. You know that that's a new era for them. We'll just call it the Fighting Hawks era, but they've been performing extremely well on the ice, and they should be performing well in the building as well in terms of attendance. It's good to see that, and of course, some of the traditional powerhouses have done that. You mentioned RIT. It's good to see an Atlantic hockey school that has that kind of devotion. And of course, RIT, very similar to RPI when I mentioned their fans and how intense they are. RIT, for for being in that smaller conference, they adore their hockey. They love that team in good times and in bad. And there have been some lean times for, for RIT, but they've done very well. So kudos to them kudos to quinnipiac and yeah you're right there is some downside to this as well yeah so the first one to highlight for just being a problem for just size wise is kind of a building mismatch ohio state plays in a building which seats 17,500 people and they're drawing 5100 now in the rest of the context 5100 is a reasonably high number. It's it's a it's about what Denver is drawing at Magnus, and Denver's rate is about eighty six percent of their building is full, which is pretty good. And truthfully, for college teams, this is why I care so much about conferences being structured in a reasonably and reasonable and intelligent manner, because you need to have people who are somewhat nearby who 
you can build up and have obvious and easy rivalries with. Denver has that with Colorado College, and they have that with Air Force. They have that with people who are nearby. And, uh, and also, but you need to have a building that actually works for the size that you have. Value City Arena is too big for what Ohio State is drawing. Now, part of that answer is I wonder how you market that team a bit better because Ohio State's a team that should be drawing more than 5,000 people to a game. I haven't been to one of their games, so I don't know what the air in the building is like, but I can't help but feel like a place that that is only drawing about 29% of its capacity. I can't help but feel like that would be a little bit down, a little bit like deflating for just the building not being completely full, you know? So Ohio State's one of the places that is a little bit down on attendance. And for all our talk about UMass Amherst being a really good team on the rise, they're only averaging about 47% capacity. But my guess is that Amherst, that campus and the town right around it, is still adjusting to that team being good, and they haven't gotten into the best part of their schedule yet. I imagine that when they play Quinnipiac and when they play UConn, in what Marcus Camby has referred to as the U game, that attendance number will go up quite a bit. The schools that have been disappointing me the most, the, the Boston schools. BU is averaging about 55% capacity, which it bugged me when I was a student there. I wish that more BU people would attend those games because that building should be full every single night. It's a capacity of 6,300. The student population, the undergrads, about 17, 18,000. And you can draw on a pretty involved alumni base that's in the area, which it's hard to get to. I fully admit that, but Boston is a nightmare to drive around. It's really difficult to get around BU, and it's difficult to find parking. But 3,500 people for BU hockey at a place that draws 63, that's, that's not a very good number, but... BC is the worst number here, 44.1% capacity at that place, which draws 7,800 people and doesn't have the same kind of parking issues because there's a garage right nearby. There's other places around there. It's not in the city proper as us non-BC people will constantly chide them for. The chant is not from Boston. The school is actually not in the thick of the city. So it's a little bit more accessible to the people in the suburbs and it's also it's a it's a not small school and people aren't turning out for it 44.1% capacity of that building gets filled up that is a bad bad number for them so i can't help but be concerned about the attendance at some of these some of these bigger places even though we did spend a whole bunch of time talking about how the play on the ice hasn't been quite as good for either of these schools and i wonder if they're feeling a little bit of the I'd like to see them perform a little bit better before i go but Come on, guys. These programs are your best. BU and BC, their hockey programs are the best that their athletic department has to offer school-wide. These are the ones you should be supporting the hardest, I think. Since you're looking at the list, out of curiosity, what does Northeastern look like on that list? Because it's been kind of a an open secret with Northeastern that Matthews, for the palace that it is, for all the renovations it has and is currently still undergoing, and for for all its history it's it's a rough arena to get to so if you're not on campus it's just tough and a lot of alumni live in places like waltham like the south shore like the north shore where getting to back bay on a friday night at seven o'clock it it's not a pleasant experience it's not something you would do willingly but it's a team that 
as I've mentioned ad nauseum, this is the ultimate iteration of this program. This is something that if you went to Northeastern and you like sports, you've been hoping to see for years, if not decades, depending on your age, but people just aren't going to see this team. You see them on the Howlin' Huskies productions, which you can watch for for free when they're at home. You can watch their games, but there are a lot of empty seats in Matthews Arena. And you know, it's been a sticking point for people who like to make fun of Northeastern, but it's also a sticking point for Northeastern itself. So where do they end up on that uh, in those numbers? So their capacity is 4666, which is it's about it's a it's about it's not it's not a high end size for a building. It's about what you would expect for a college hockey building in the Northeast. They're averaging twenty five ninety for uh for a game this season that's 55 and a half percent capacity so the building's about half full for uh for most of their nights it, it i feel like it should be noted that they've had some crowds which have been uh which have been abnormally larger have been like have been actually drawing like properly what they should be and, and i want to see what that saint cloud game because i remember that crowd for the October 27th, which, which was a signature game for them being loud. But for the actual numbers overall for the season, it's about the same percentage as what BU is drawing. Um, so that put them... So in a building of 46, that can sit 4,600, Northeastern and St. Cloud drew 3,900. So it was a much louder crowd than normal. It was a bigger crowd than normal. And if you watch their television games, what you'll frequently see is the upper bowl is normally pretty full. It's the lower areas, the, uh, the lower bowl that's underneath place where the dog, where the dog pound sets up or uh, the dog house sets up. That's the part that's normally a bit more lacking, which is a bit concerning. And the students, they turn out, they actually care and they will, very possibly, I, I would almost say very likely have the biggest turnout at the bean pot. And if I'm on the uh, the kind of disappointing sides and the 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 other Boston school that I'm seeing this weekend, I've frequently been very disappointed in Harvard's turnout for uh, for their hockey games. Their building is really small. Their building only fits their capacity is about twenty seven hundred. They've averaged eighteen fourteen. 1,814 people for their games. I expect that building to be packed to the rafters with people, and I expect about half of them to be Cornell people. That's not a good sign for a fan base when when half the building is packed and it's the visiting team. And that's a rivalry where Harvard should be rocking the building. There is a very well-founded reason for why the Cornell people frequently refer to Harvard as Lina East. That's the insult that's thrown around the most. And as the son of a Harvard guy, yeah, that's a regrettably deserved statement. Cornell turns out they travel remarkably well. They fill up 88% of the building. They care about their team. And I want to see Harvard fill up their building. And I hope that they fill the place up if we're just, if I want to round out the concern I have about. Uh, the Boston attendance stuff. In part, Harvard doesn't exist to be an undergraduate school. Harvard exists to kind of be a cultural institution and to be Harvard. So 
there is that different sort of culture and different sort of expectation. But for the kind of program that they have, those attendance figures are just not good enough. They deserve and need more support than what they've been getting so far. Right, and I would say something similar about them under Ted Donato that I would say about Northeastern under Jim Madigan, that this, if you're going to follow Harvard's program, if you went to Harvard and you like sports, why would you not come see this team as long as Ted Donato's coaching it? Because as long as he's there, they're going to be good. They're, they might be great at times and have been great at times, like when they had Ryan Donato there last year and the year before when they were fantastic. And they've had Jimmy Vesey. They've had some of the greatest players of the last few years come through them. They've had national championship contenders. They've had a beanpot winner. This is the time to go see Harvard and to see that their students – and their alumni and their well-wishers in the in the area of which there are of course many just aren't coming out for those games it's a shame because they have the history they have the present they have a team that's really worth supporting and i could say this of a lot of teams that are not doing well in attendance but it's shocking that they're not because this is the time to go see them yeah, I mean, there's other places which have been traditional forces, and uh, we spend a lot an inordinate amount of time talking about hockey East stuff. But I mean, it's what we know. New Hampshire's been doing a little bit poor in attendance lately compared to what they were when you went up to Lake Wit and you knew that you were walking into the Lions Den or, or into the Wildcats Den. Uh, a lion is a wildcat, I guess. UNH is only averaging about 64% capacity. Worth noting that I went, I was in Durham for their Friday night game against Miami, Ohio, and it ended up being an overtime game where UNH got three points off of one of the biggest, off of uh, a ranked team, off of Miami, Ohio, which is a really, really good program and looked pretty good doing it, especially the next night when they won, I think, 4-1 or something like that. But their attendance has been down a little bit. In part, I think they're. I think that they've just been coming off a point where they've not been as successful lately. So I guess I can understand that. Maine, kind of the same thing. They have the same proportions. UConn is kind of weird because UConn is playing in a building in the XL Center, which for the actual, like if you counted up all the seats, if you were to open up all of them, it's an NHL-sized building. It's a 15,000-person or larger building. They ma- they map off a certain amount of it so that the max capacity for that building is nine thousand. UConn's drawing thirty five ninety for these games, which I wonder if that has something to do with what the attendance figures have been or what the uh, uh, potential attendance could be at their new on campus building that we've spent a little bit of time talking about on this podcast, and that's been the subject of discussion in a lot of people particularly in eastern hockey but there's a couple other places as well that have been a little bit surprising bowling green is one of the best defensive teams in the country in fact for defensive purposes they allow the fewest goals per game 167 goals per game compared to umass's 182 they're averaging about half attendance 50 51.8 percent to be exact which in their building they sit 5,000. They're averaging 2,500. Bowling Green, throw them on a list of teams that this is the time when you really, really should be supporting them. And it's 
it's just a really curious time to be a part of a program like that. Northern Michigan, about 65%. Dartmouth, 56 Clarkson, actually Clarkson's fine, 92 That Anything that I look at and I see about 79 and up, good. Anything I see 80 and up, really good. 90, fine, don't touch it. Leave it alone and let it run and let it operate and let it fly. So it's just kind of a curious position for a number of these schools to be in, I think. And while we're at it, I don't care how bad your team is. I don't care how much of a doormat they are in their conference. If you're a school that plays Division One NCAA college hockey and you've got an arena, say, 2,500 people, and you're packing in 553 a night. That's embarrassing. And I I know that the Brown Bears, they're just not the great, they're not the greatest of programs. They're in a down period, even for them. They're absolutely a doormat right now. But 553 people a night, that's all they're getting. That's that's um that that's almost hard to believe. I was in that building for when uh uh I was in that building for when they hosted Vermont and they played a pretty decent game against them and the place felt completely empty. And it's a good building. It's a cool building. It's right on campus. It's uh it's it's a really nice it's it's old-timey hockey. It it doesn't have the modern amenities that you would see at a Gannis or at uh it's it's not a Whittemore Center. It's certainly not an XL Center. It's cert- I mean, nothing is like the the Ralph up in North Dakota. It's a good quality, old timey building that just smells like old fashioned classic hockey, which is just great. And in a state that really does support hockey very well, Rhode Island loves that stuff. Yeah, it's it's disconcerting to see that kind of thing. Robert Morris, you could say kind of the same thing about it, although they're averaging about half attendance, but their building only sits 1,500, which means they are seating about 800 a night. Arizona State, they're in kind of a fluky situation. They're waiting until they can build a proper on-campus arena, which they'll fit more people, and they're currently currently averaging about 176% capacity at a 500-person building. So, we're, so I'm going to sort of exclude them from this discussion for a little bit but sacred heart and american international i could throw in that similar kind of category as well but it feels a lot worse because sacred heart and american international play in much bigger buildings yellow jackets play in the mass mutual center in downtown springfield sacred heart plays at the uh at uh, webster bank in bridgeport i was at Last year, a game between Air Force and Sacred Heart, which anything involving Air Force should be a decent turnout, that place felt so empty. That place felt dead. So it's just – it's a program that probably does need a bit more support to spur it on to greater heights and to see more success. But, yeah, it's there's reason for concern. In the depths of college hockey, if you're not drawing, you're really not drawing, and that's not a good sign. Fairfield was in kind of a similar position before they folded their team. So was Findlay. So was uh, UI Chicago. The schools that used to have Division I programs and don't anymore. And there are schools that 
used to have Division One programs and don't anymore. Now, part of the reason I say that I don't care if you're a losing team, Vermont, who is currently just the odds are against them in hockey East. They don't have a bad team. They can, they can surprise some people and they certainly have good goaltending up there in Burlington, but they're not winning a lot of games and they're not expected to do much. And they're still filling 90.7% of the gut on a nightly basis when their hockey teams in town, 3,631 people going to each of their games on average. Anyway, that is, that's an impressive number for a school that again, you're not looking at a team that's going to really be a force in hockey East, at least not right now. And it's interesting to see how well they've done and how much of their arena they're filling even though they're not necessarily in the greatest of situations. And of course, because I've made so much fun of them, I have to point out 4,300 people a night come see Minnesota state. That's good numbers. That's 81.5% of their building. And that's a big building with high expectations because they're an all around athletic school they have recent national championships and major sports. So they expect success. They haven't really had it lately. And I'm reading the wrong state. Michigan state <laughs> is bringing in 52.79 a night. I was wrong on those numbers. I was reading Minnesota state's numbers, which are similar in terms of percentage, 81.6 for Michigan state, 81.5 for Minnesota state, who is of course, one of the best teams in the country. So sorry about that Minnesota state and sorry about that Sparty because 5,200 people a night come to see that team. I mean, in part, they have a really nice arena to go to. The Mun Mun is a really nice arena. Michigan, there are some of these schools, some of the reasons why you'd want to go see these blue blue blood programs, the arenas themselves are just really, really nice. You've been to Aganis. It's a really great building. Northeastern is old old and charming, and it's a relic of Boston's great sports heritage. That's a building you want to go to. The Alfond, in part, the attendance has been a little bit lower because the teams haven't been quite as good lately up in Arno. They've been a little bit disappointing this year. They're only averaging about 63% capacity, but the Alphonse is a building that you have to see at some point. And Yale, who's not expected to do that much, they're filling up about 96% of their building. And some of the other schools that are are really doing a nice job of filling out attendance, the Ralph Engelstad Arena is the prettiest arena in college hockey, and there isn't a second-place guy who's close. There, There isn't a second arena that is even close to the Ralph up in North Dakota from admittedly from everything I've heard, we we may well get our, uh, my editor from inside hockey on this podcast at some point soon to talk about it all, because it's a building that should be seen. And I want to go see that place. Amosol up in Duluth, I've told is a really nice building. Pagula ice arena. I know Sarah Sivian, who's now working for the athletic and writing about the Carolina hurricanes. And I asked her, cause she went to Penn state. I asked her how Pagula was. That building, in her words, is nicer than some NHL buildings, and the facilities are a lot nicer and a lot better than many National Hockey League buildings. So I can't help but wonder also if just the quality of the building plays a big part of it as well, which I'm sure it does. The nicer buildings are probably going to draw more people as well. The gut, 
the guts is an older building. It has the retro feel. It has the walking into an old timey hockey barn, which I mean, that has its charm and has its place as well. So I can't help but wonder how much of an impact that has on the attendance too. Okay, so getting back into this coming weekend for college hockey, we've talked about some of the big matchups, but there are so many more because every weekend is a busy weekend in college hockey. North Dakota and Minnesota Duluth. This is an NCHC brawl, and it is probably the most local rivalry, except, of course, Colorado College and Denver, in the conference and these two teams have been flying high recently minnesota duluth of course the defending national champions the number two team in the country and on friday night they host north dakota and then again on saturday night at amsoil arena in duluth this is gonna be a fun one yeah actually you're talking about these teams have made up the matchups in the last couple of national championship games. In fact, North Dakota was in the Frozen Four in 2014, 15, and 16. Won the whole thing in 16. Duluth was in the Frozen Four 2017 and 18, was in the national championship both years and won last year. If you want to talk about the most successful programs over the last couple of years, look no further than these two schools. Specific, like these schools specifically. We The NCHC at large throwing Denver in there but North Dakota and Minnesota Duluth have really been running the show overall. I think there are still I think there are still your share of blue blood programs that have much more influence over everything else. Duluth and North Dakota are on there. North Dakota just jumped back into the USA Today poll. They were out after last week and they've had a pretty dominating display over um they had a really really dominating display over the good people from uh, from Alaska Anchorage and they won games that they were supposed to and they they're up to 15 now in in one poll actually 15 in both polls and it's a it's an interesting squad it's an interesting place and it does play to Duluth's benefit that they're playing this game at home so uh, I would kind of expect Duluth to have the better end of it but I can't help but wonder how well Brad Berry's team is going to get up for that opportunity to go on the road and face the uh, face face Sandalin up in up in Duluth. That's going to be such fun. Another really fun one. It's a battle of WCHA Titans, old and new. Lake Superior State, who by the way is holding on to that twentieth spot in the USCHO poll. They are good this year to Lakers, and they're taking on Minnesota State. Yes, I did have it right this time. Minnesota State playing Lake Superior State. Minnesota State comes in the number four team in the country. Last year, they were great. This year, they're great. Mankato is on the rise, and they're taking on what was, at one point, one of those blue bloods in Lake Superior State. Lake State has kind of a weird spot in the history of college hockey because they kind of sprung from nowhere in the late 80s and the early 90s with a dynasty of three championships between 1988 and 1994. It's one of the most random dynasties that ever sprung up in the sport because it's not a big school. It's right across the it's right across the border between US and Canada on Sault Ste. Marie and in, in Michigan and on the opposite side of the border 
is also Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, where the Greyhounds are a rather successful team in the OHL. So you're looking across the way at a really successful team long-term where a lot of NHL players have gone through the place that's right across the lake. That's right across the border. So it's a really interesting spot that Lake State holds in the long-term history of the sport. And it's really nice to see Mankato doing as well as they are right now. And I'll completely, I'll continue to eat crow. I thought Minnesota State would not do as well. And I'll continue to uh, beg for forgiveness from the good people of Mankato. But because they're so nice up there in Minnesota, I'm sure that they'll be uh, willing to grant me that. But, but yeah, I, I'd like to quote the TV show Fargo on this. Not really, not not so much friendly. <laughs> it, it's just how they're so polite about it. Yeah. Like you're doing me a favor. Yeah, no. Oh, no, that's totally fair. That's absolutely fair. And I understand that. It's just kind of a funny way to think about it in my in my book. But this is a fun team, and this is a really curious matchup. I saw Lake State earlier this year. They uh, won one nothing over Merrimack at Merrimack and looked kind of good doing it. Their goaltender kind of stole in the game. And for the standings right now for the WCHA, Lake State is fourth at 4-3-1 and one overall. Minnesota State is second at 5-1. and one. Number one in the WCHA right now, Michigan Tech. They're actually unbeaten in conference. Six and oh. Trouble is they have BC syndrome. They're one in five outside of outside of WCHA play. So it might be a case where the one or possibly two schools behind them, because Bowling Green continues to hold on to a decent spot. They're sixth behind a pretty tightly bunched Northern Michigan, Lake Superior, and Bemidji State. I think Bowling Green is probably better than both of those ones. They're probably a little bit better than Northern. They're not quite as good as as Mankato, and they're probably almost certainly better than Michigan Tech. So it's just kind of interesting the way the standings are shaking up right now in uh, in that conference. But you're right. For the total matchups for that play across the whole board, it's the Mankato matchup and the Lake State matchup, which is the most interesting Followed second and kind of closely, Bemidji State and Tech in Houghton. Houghton. It's spelled H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. How do you spell? Uh, how do you spell the place where Michigan Tech is? How do you pronounce it? I, I pronounce it Houghton. Or Houghton. yeah, yeah. Okay, just wanted to make sure because I've heard I've heard some people pronounce it different ways. We'll go with Houghton until we're told otherwise. I at some point in the at indeterminate future there is a michigan tech super fan who listens to this show and would like to come on the show and we will have him on i do promise you we haven't forgotten you we will have you on and he will teach us all about what i believe is called copper country up that way cool i i like to hear more about these kind of uh these these kinds of schools that we don't talk about that much and i will that that'll be awesome I, yeah. I will warn Penn State fans in advance, you might want to skip that one. Uh, I mean, don't you just want Penn State to go and play at the McInnes Student Center? In uh, Don't you just want that matchup just to see how the Michigan Tech fans turn out and boo Penn State? We need a national television partner for college hockey in the United States. Um, I, I know that that's different. You have to do it with each individual conference, but if they're going to have that game, 
we all need to be able to sit down and watch it with a beer. Oh God, that'd be so beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, let's, let's get him on at some point. Uh, so we got him and North Dakota man on my end for guys to get on this podcast. Cool. And and the voice of FGCU Hockey, who I spoke to earlier today because he's another sports writer in the Tampa Bay area. They have one of the great ACHA programs in the country. And of course, you know, I love to talk up how the West Coast of Florida is a bit of a hockey market that no one really acknowledges yet so i'll have him on as well there will be guests on this show eventually but we're just having a lot of fun talking it out and you know let's admit it making fun of bc (laughs) trust me i am totally game for that also isn't there actually a building that florida gulf coast if they were to jump into division one isn't there a building that they could go and play in pretty quickly right now just thinking about that i believe so and we'll we'll be able to ask ask the expert all about it but yeah they're they're in fort myers it's not like they're out in the middle of like vacationer country out there that's a city in and of itself fort myers so they they could theoretically there is an arena there that they might be able to fill but of course they'd need a terry pegula style billionaire to come and kind of gift them a program and of course, if any NFL owners are out there listening to this, where's your competitive energy? Well, don't you just want to stick it to Pegula? And don't you just want to do it better? Come on, all of you, get involved. So this has turned from us talking about the sport to us uh, pitching this as a business deal to greedy NFL owners. Cool. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting way to explain college hockey as an opportunity to make Pegula or tell Pegula to pound sand. It's kind of an interesting pitch, but I think... Well, I don't want to tell him to pound sand necessarily. I want the other NFL owners to get that competitive juice flowing because if it worked so well at Penn State, because we talked about their attendance is through the roof, almost literally, it's over capacity. So if it can be done there, it could be done with an FGCU, with a USF, with Southern Cal, with maybe the University of Arizona, give Arizona State a nice little local rival. That would be nice. That that would be really nice to get to see. But, uh, I mean, money speaks, and we're still waiting for uh, the money to start flowing in for a bunch of these other programs as it did for Penn State. Simple as that at this point. Yep, and, and you know, eventually maybe we might be able to get Puck University in some kind of an online Rob report or something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe we can maybe we can find a way to actually make the pitch to billionaires because we've got to do something. Someone's got to do something. There have to be 60 just isn't enough. This is too much fun. We need more schools. I mean – we enjoy all the schools that we have. D- don't worry. We we definitely love all the people that uh, we talk about here, and we also love making fun of BC. But uh, it's a good time getting to have all the stuff that uh, that we do. Mind you, everything about BC that is not Jerry York. Jerry York is great. Everything else about it we will make fun of relentlessly. I, I, did we get our legal disclaimers out there good and clear? Was that good enough? Yeah, I think that's a good way to end this podcast. We bookended it with a couple of jokes about BC couched in a little bit of love for one of college hockey's great institutions in Jerry York. 
You can follow Chris Lynch on Twitter at CC Lynch Wall and please read his stuff on InsideHockey.com. He's at, as you can tell listening to this podcast, he's at so many games all over the Eastern Seaboard. So he is your Eastern expert in college hockey. Please follow him on Twitter. Please check out his stuff on InsideHockey.com. Chris, where are you going to be this weekend? Well, first, I've got a November wrap-up for the stories that happened in college hockey over the month of November with the acknowledgement that, yeah, there's there's one more day of November to play, but it's basically December. It's cold and kind of terrible up in the Northeast. So I've got a November notes that should be up uh, tomorrow whenever this podcast, which would be Thursday, which would be the day that this podcast goes up. Friday, I'm at Aganis Arena for a 7.30 puck drop between BU and BC. Saturday, I am at... Bright Landry Hockey Center for a 7 p.m. puck drop between the Big Red and the Crimson. Sunday, I'm off. Tuesday, I am in Bentley at the, and in Waltham at the Bentley Arena, the very nice, very shiny new Bentley Arena for the Harvard Crimson paying a visit to the Falcons, which if, if you are in Massachusetts and you have not yet seen Bentley's new arena, go see it. It is a masterpiece of small small college arena design it's it's so beautiful it's such a great great venue i love it dearly so yeah that's where i'm gonna be this weekend for uh for college hockey stuff follow me on the sites where tim mentioned me and you can follow tim williams on the twitter <laughs> and on the instagram feed at tim writes sports and you can follow him doing a whole bunch of uh, hockey stuff for Sports Talk Florida, covering the Tampa Bay Lightning and hopefully marketing and promoting the good people uh, in the Florida college hockey scene or what we hope will be a Division One college hockey scene at some point in the not terribly distant future. In fact, there will be some stuff before too long on SportsTalkFlorida.com about college hockey and these club teams in the Florida area, our own Matthew Estevez, who might end up on this podcast eventually as well, will be out there in USF checking out the Ice Bulls, who, if nothing else, they have really good uniforms. That green and gold just works really well together. So you, they're a fun team to watch, too, and we'll learn all about them. You can follow my stuff on Sports Talk Florida. You can follow me on Twitter. And, of course, while you're following things, please follow this podcast wherever you found it. Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to us and please tell a friend we've been growing this thing. We want to keep growing this thing. We've got some plans for the future and they'll only get more intricate as you help us grow this thing. For Chris Lynch up in the Boston area, I'm Tim Williams down in Tampa Bay. And ladies and gentlemen, as always, keep your head up and your hits clean. <laughs>